This morning is the uh, final installment or the final message for our series that we've been in. And this series has been a series in which we've been looking at the rise of David from the sheep pen to the throne. And this morning, we're going to conclude David is now going to be on the throne with peace on his borders after a number of battle campaigns. And he's going to begin to legislate or act as a king from the throne. And what we're going to observe is that we're going to observe that this king from this throne disperses kindness. Let's look at the scriptures this morning. Here in 1 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Let's stop at that word and. And you can go back if you have a Bible this morning, or it should be on the overhead, and you can look at verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 8 says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. What's happening is, is that this king is going to be different. He is going to be different from King Saul. King Saul began to become very clingy to that throne. And it was all about him and his descendants. He did many, many things in order to protect his throne, even to pursue David like an enemy. David now is on the throne, and it says... His goal is to legislate and to rule as a king with justice and equity. And so that little word, and, is to say, what is going to mark this king is going to be how he rules his kingdom. And so in verse 3, I mean in verse 1, he begins with a question. Is there still anyone left? of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's a very interesting question. And this question is going to put him on a pursuit to seek to disperse justice and equity to all in his domain by showing kindness. Kindness to those that do not deserve it. He's not insensitive and he's not unmindful of that. So I want you to see three things this morning. I want you to say, see the reason for the king's kindness. And then I want you to see how far that kindness reaches. And then finally this morning, I want you to see the results of that kindness. So without further ado, look here again at the scriptures with me. David has asked this question, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. 
And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. In your bulletin, we've got a copy of the scripture this morning, and you could fast forward to verse 10. And at the end of verse 10, it says, Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba is the manager for all of Saul's property. Saul was the first king of Israel. And in a battle with the Philistines, Saul and his son Jonathan were slain. And all the property of the king was managed by Ziba. And it's speculation, we don't know for sure, but it seems that Ziba was easy to find. He was there in the royal court. In other words, when David inquires, is there anybody left of the house of Saul? The steward over Saul's possession says, yeah, there is one. This is Ziba. Ziba would not be having 15 sons unless he could afford that many sons. He wouldn't have 20 servants unless he could afford that many servants. He was using all of those things as if it were rightfully his own. You see, Ziba knew the great, unlikely, almost impossibility of a house member of Saul ever being shown such a mercy, such a kindness. It would be out of this world kindness, that they would take the things from Ziba and restore them to a family member of Saul. Verse 3, And the king said, Is there not someone in the house of Saul? Now he's asking Ziba a question. Is there not someone still of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. One of the reasons that Jonathan, I mean, one of the reasons that David wants to show compassion to someone in the household of Saul is because of a covenant, a pledge, a promise of love that he made to Jonathan. We see this back in 1 Samuel chapter 20 in verse 42. The last words of Jonathan. He will go on with his father, King Saul. Bear in mind, Jonathan is the crown prince. Saul is is on the throne and he is protecting that throne even against David, the promised king, For his son Jonathan. Jonathan is the one that is the promised child of Saul to have those royal robes. To sit on that throne. But Jonathan pledges himself to David's success. David is the one at this point that is considered no one from the throne. But Jonathan looks at David. Last words and he says... Then Jonathan said to David, verse 42, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, 
the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And then David rose and departed and he would not see Jonathan again. David is seeking someone to love on the basis of a promise that he has made. He is seeking to show love to someone that he loved and was loved by and they made a covenant promise and they said, I will always love you. And David said, back at you, I will always love you. And Jonathan says, I'll love your kids. And David says, I'll love your kids. And David is going to keep that promise. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tip my hand real early here, even in the first point. I want you to begin to see King Jesus emerge, ruling from this throne, his throne. David is a mirror. Though cloudy at points, he is a reflection of our king, of what Jesus as a king would look like. Let me ask you a question. If you could be king or queen for a day, you only got 24 hours. The fanfare is now over and you're on the throne. You've got the crown. You've got the scepter or mace. And everyone is looking to you. For you to utter, what's the first legislation? What's the first thing that you're going to do? What's the first thing you're going to do to change this kingdom or impact this kingdom? What's the first thing you're going to do for yourself? You've got the power. What's the first thing that David does? The first thing that he does now that he's got the power is says, I keep my promises of love. What's the first thing that David Jesus says, when he is on the throne, he says, I keep my promises of love. But wait, don't you understand? Mephibosheth, he's undeserving. He is a grandchild of your enemy. I keep my promise of love to the undeserving. I will keep my promise not even dependent upon their actions or their worthiness. But secondly, did you see how kindness is further uh, uh, defined in verse 3? Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now, this word kindness is a very hard to define in the English word. It shows up three times here in verse nine, in chapter 9. It shows up in verse 1. It shows up here in verse 3. And it shows up again in verse 7. Where David tells Mephibosheth, who's brought to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father i.e. grandfather. The word is hesit. Now in some of your dictionaries, it's going to show up C-H-E-S-E-D, but the C is silent. Hesed. And the, the definition is one that it means a steadfast love. It's a loyal love. 
It's a love that will endure. It's a love that is unconditional. It's a love that is pledged. It's a covenant love. It's not a contractual love. The closest thing that we have to understanding a covenant is marriage, the the marriage vows that we exchange. When we exchange those traditional vows of in sickness and in health, for richer but also for poorer, in joy but also for sorrow, what we're saying is this marriage could get ugly. This thing could face trouble. This marriage could be entering into a time of poverty, sorrow, or ill health. But I'm not going anywhere. My love is loyal. My love is hesed. On your own, you can look into Exodus 34 when when a discouraged Moses asked God, show me your glory, God. Just, God... These people are so difficult to lead. I am so worn out in this wilderness. If I could just catch a glimpse of you, if I could just have some intimacy with you, then that would, that would strengthen me. And God said, I will show you. I will pass. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put you in this, these rocks to surround you. And then I'm going to pass by. And as he passes by, he recites his name. And one of the names that he recites is, I am a God, I am a Hesed God. My love for you, Moses, is steadfast. It's not contingent upon even your behavior. We see it also in the psalm. Psalm 89. Psalm 89, beginning with verse 33. I will not remove from him my Hesed love. Now, this is God speaking through the psalmist about David, about his love for David, his Hesed love for David. And it's this love that is the energy behind David saying, I can show love to the undeserving because I too was the undeserving. I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. In other words, it's not dependent upon even David's faithfulness. Though it's sought, and you would expect him to return and reciprocate that love by being faithful to one that should love him like this. But God is saying, it's based, I will be as faithful as my faithfulness is. I will not violate my covenant, my promise, my pledge. I keep, I'm a God that keeps my promises. And if I promise and pledge to be steadfast in my love, it's not conditional. It's a covenant promise. Or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. In other words, as long as the sun shines, I will keep my promise and my pledge to love David and his children. And he will always have a man on the throne. And as we prepare to come into the 
the Advent season, celebrating the incarnation and the birth of Christ, we celebrate the arrival out of the line of David, King Jesus, who will take that throne and who will maintain the very promise to love us, to love the unworthy, to love those that do not deserve to be loved. Well, who is the object of this love? If if the reasons behind David's love, if the reasons are, number one, I keep my promises, and number two, because God has shown steadfast love to me, and because He has put this hesed love upon me, this steadfast love to me, then I want to show this same kindness of God to Him. In other words, I'm not loving out of my own strength. I'm mindful that I was a poor shepherd and now I'm on the throne. And it's all by the grace, all by the mercy, all by the very kindness and the loving plan of God. Verse 4. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Matror, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Matror, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. There's that hesed again. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he, and this is Mephibosheth, paid homage. That means he worshipped. That means not groveling, but that means showing awe and respect. He certainly would have bowed if not have been down on his face. But but he's moving from a point now of trembling to looking at this king and how this king rules differently from his grandfather Saul. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Eugene Peterson, in his book, Leap Over a Wall, says this about Mephibosheth. He grew up in obscurity, lame. Mephibosheth was the only living heir of the once great house of Saul, but nobody knew it because his life would have been in danger. He grew up with his royal identity suppressed. He grew up with all the privileges of royalty denied him. And both conditions were aggravated by his lameness. A sudden exile, a terrible fall, and the loss of a future. He was the definition of seething dishonor, which is what his name Mephibosheth means. If you were to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, you would read the incident there of where Word has reached the house of Saul that Saul and Jonathan have both been slain. 
the king and the crown prince have died. And so either the Philistines are going to overrun the land or David is going to come charging back in to seize the throne. But either way, it's not good news for any survivor, any contender to the throne from the house of Saul. So the maid, the, the nursery worker, the attendant to Mephibosheth, who's five years old, she rushes in, she grabs him out of the playroom, and they begin to run. And in her haste, she falls, drops him, and he breaks both of his ankles. Those ankles heal badly. He is so lame, in all likelihood, he has to be transported by a chair or by arms or carried where he goes. Possibly, he could have crutches that he could noisily swing his legs around and and try to claw himself around either by crawling or friends assisting him or crutches. But they run to Lodabar. Lodabar is in obscurity. And its very name means nothing. It's nothingville. It's nowheresville, man. It is nothing is happening there. Part is to hide so that you can never talk about your previous days. I was once a crown prince of Israel. My grandfather was once the king. You could never say that out of fear that someone would come gunning for you. Lodabar, nothing. There's nothing special about where I'm found. The place where I'm found right now is nothingville. I'm in a place right now where I cannot even think about my royal identity, but I have no identity outside of nothing. Just before I go on to his name, where are you right now? Yeah, I know you're in the sanctuary of Two Rivers Presbyterian Church, at least a high school auditorium. But what place are you in spiritually? Are you, are you in the king's throne room? Do you say, you know, Pastor Phil, I count myself a Christian. I count myself as a royal son and daughter. I'm living as a royal son or daughter of the king. And I'm walking with King Jesus, and I'm feeling, and I'm experiencing, and I'm aware of His kindness and His mercy to me. I'm, a, I'm mindful of His hesed to me, and it just gives a, a jump in my step, and it makes me worship. Or would you say, I'm in, I'm in a weird place. It's like I come to church, or I go to community group, or I'm with other, I'm going to Bible studies, and it's like I see people that are very close to God, but I don't feel as close. But then I'm not far away like I used to be. I still have lots of thoughts of God, but I don't have the intimacy. I feel like I've drifted. Or you would say, I am totally, totally far away. All of this is foreign. I don't ever want, I'm, I have no desires to be in the palace. I have no confusion of identity. I'm just here out of curiosity, and I'm glad you're here. I really am glad that you're here, and you're asking the questions, and you're beginning to look and to, to observe Christians. 
But there are times, I will be honest with you, that we don't walk out of our identity as royal sons and daughters if you're a Christian. And we get into an area that's like the old lady trying to cross the picket fence. She throws one leg, she hikes her skirt up, her dress up, and she puts one leg over, but while she's going over the picket fence, she suddenly realizes, I'm not quite tall enough to get all the way over. And so I need to go back. And then she realizes, I can't quite get back, and I'm on this picket fence. I'm not here, and I'm not there, and it's very uncomfortable. That's nothingville. But notice this king, he sends to nothingville. And he says, I don't want you to live the plateaued Christian life. I don't want your life to be joyless, which is a mark of nothingville. Just obscure. Just joy, no joy. It's always gray. It's always sad. It's always depressed in nothingville. This king see, seeks him out, and he says, I'm sending from Nothingville, and I'm going to bring you all the way to Jerusalem, which is called the Holy City. It's the city of David. It's the city of Zion. It's God's city. I'm going to bring you into the palace. It's festive here. I'm going to bring you from there to here. And who does he bring? He brings Mephibosheth. Now, you might have noticed that Ziba has never named Mephibosheth. It's as if he has so dehumanized Mephibosheth that he doesn't identify him by the beauty of his name or by a, a person's name. He just It would be like us identifying somebody because of a trait or a sin pattern. Oh yeah, that's, you know, the one, she got a divorce. Oh, you know, you know him, he's, he's the addict. Or... He's, he's the one that stole that stuff. Or he's the one that drinks too much. Or she's the one that had the affair. Notice that he said, yeah, he's the one that's lame. He's the one that can't walk. He's the one that lives in nothingville. And David is the first one that addresses him by name. And there's a little exclamation mark there. In verse 6, David said, Mephibosheth. What would this guy out of Nothingville, what would he have thought when he heard the horses or the chariots roll up in Nothingville? The town had never seen anything like that. These are the king's men, and they've come on the king's mission. Perhaps he finally thinks it's over. They've come to... Collect on a debt, my life is over. Well, get in the chariot. We're here on a royal mission, and our mission is to present you to the king. Great. He's going to further shame me. My name means shame, dishonor, low, nothing. My name is nothing. And now he comes He's ushered into the presence of the king. A king who has been eagerly looking for him. Not looking to him to reciprocate the lost love of Jonathan. Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan, and David, it says that they had such a love that it was greater than even a man and a woman can have. 
that their hearts were so knit together with Hesed love for one another that David mourned and mourned when Jonathan was slain. Do you think David is looking to Mephibosheth and said, I want us to have, hey buddy, you're, you're his son, so in a sense I'm kind of like your uncle. I want us to have that. I want you to love me like Jonathan. You know there's been a vacuum there. No. What David does, he says, I'm going to transfer all the love I had for Jonathan. I'm going to transfer that love to you. Again, remember King Jesus. King Jesus enjoys the love of God as a father. And he says, I'm not looking for you to love me even like that. I'm looking for you to be the vessel of my kindness and for you to receive and have transferred to you not what you deserve, not death, and not curse because of your name. What does he do? He redeems the name. He says, Mephibosheth. And from this point on, this name, every time it's mentioned, it's in a positive light. Mephibosheth, I'm going to restore to you. Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, yes, your son also, everybody, come. He changes, he redeems his name. And that's King Jesus. King Jesus doesn't see me out of my lameness or my weakness. He looks at me and he sees me as a royal child. And he redeems me and he restores me. Look look here at the different names. Romans 9 verses 25 and 26. Think about how God, if you become a Christian, if you become a Christian, how God changes your name. How God changes or restores your identity. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. He's the house of Saul, but now you're going to be of the house of David. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Your name was dishonored, but now I'm going to speak Mephibosheth in a manner like you are my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Mephibosheth, nothingville, nobody, not your people, David. Keep moving. No, I rule differently. This king shows kindness to those that don't deserve it. He's beloved. He's my people. He's my son, says King Jesus to those who appear before him. Mephibosheth sees himself as not only a dog, which is is, um, insulting to a Jew, but a dead dog. Imagine, sounds gross or crass, but a dead dog on the side of the road. Begins to rot away, begins to smell, maggots. Here's Mephibosheth, and he's saying, I don't deserve it. I don't warrant it. How can you look at me and see royalty? How can you look at me and show such kindness? Remember the reasons. David does it on the basis of promises that he's made to God. Even Jesus looks to us. And he and the Father in heaven, before he came to earth, 
had a plan. And that plan was out of their love for one another to redeem, to seek out those that they would adopt as sons and daughters. And Jesus keeps his promise. Thomas Manton, one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Manton said, if you struggle with discouragement, if you struggle, if you struggle with discouragement, then think of how, no, you are not worthy of God's love, but Christ is worthy of all of God's love. And God has made a promise to Christ, and He will keep His promise to Christ. So that now, the change is, if you will begin to think about God keeping His promise to Christ, you have little reason to be discouraged. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it differently. He says this, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher, said, the royal remedy for depression, the royal remedy for self-pity and misery is to reflect on the great and royal doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's a mouthful of doctrine, but what it means is that God puts His love upon us not because we deserve it or earn it or can ever repay it, but He comes to us and He forgives us and He moves us from nowhereville, nothingville, as nobodies to the royal throne. All through the person of Jesus Christ if we will accept it. That's called faith. If we won't go back to those places, but if we'll stay in those, that royal inhabitants. Martin Luther says, the more you think, if you can put yourself in Mephibosheth, if you can put yourself like Mephibosheth before King Jesus today, and if you can hear Him changing your life, then the result will be, you won't struggle with self-misery or depression or discouragement as much. And what are the results? We see them right here. The results are threefold. First of all, he tells him, don't be afraid. He takes his fear and he gives him peace. How we fear sometimes the face of God. If I invited you this morning to get very close to God and to come close. Some of you are going to be afraid that God's faith only contains judgment or condemnation. But see Jesus on this throne. And King Jesus wants to remove all fear and all doubt. He invites us in. Secondly, notice that He restores to Him his inheritance. All the land that was Saul his father or grandfather shall be given back to him and he shall eat at the table always. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, 
so will your servant do. He now has a very promising future. Not only will he eat at the king's table, but he will become he will become not simply the steward over all of these vast possessions that will bring him a monthly revenue and salary and, a, and it will take care of him and his lineage. Not only is he going to be a steward, he's going to be the owner of all those things. It goes from Ziba, who had sought to dispossess him, it goes from Ziba, now Ziba must serve him. Ziba, who previously wouldn't even mention his name, is now the servant, and Mephibosheth is the master. It is incomprehensible, and I would do a disservice to try to rehearse all the riches and all the promise of your inheritance as a child of God. You are rich. You are fabulously rich. We get, we get, at points, so tunnel vision on just this world in my little day, and we forget about the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. We forget about all the promises that have been made to us. All the promises that He has pledged to keep, and He will keep out of His love for us. Lastly, notice that He adopts him as a son. So, the end of verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both of his feet. You know, it's like bookends, which is very interesting to me. Whenever the Scripture repeats something, it's not just trying to be redundant. It's trying to have a point of emphasis. This is the second time, like a bookend, we began by being introduced to Mephibosheth, not by name, but by his lame feet, by his lameness, by his weakness, by how undeserving he was. And now here, it says, he swung those lame feet. He still had lameness. He still had weakness. He still had frailty. He still had sin. He was still unclean and impure, but he swung those feet under the king's table. At one point, his weakness and his lameness by men would keep him far away from royalty, but not this king. This king said, bring your weakness with you. Bring your lameness with me, but put it at my table. The promise of King Jesus is that we shall be healed. We are in the process of growing more and more in our royal identity. We're not there yet. But to the degree that we continue to come to the king's table, to the degree we continue to feast at his provision, to the degree that I continue now, I grow into my royalty. I begin to leave nothingville far behind. I begin to say, wow, this is the experience of a royal son or daughter. Think about that table. Last thought. Think about that table. The table is set. The king's family 
and his guests are at the table and they hear a sound. They hear a sound of a lame man making his approach to that table. And they begin to wonder and scratch their head. What is, I know that David made some promises, but this guy's going to take them. He's going to believe it. He's taking him up on it. And here's Mephibosheth. And as he comes to that table, and he begins to get his crippled feet under that table, he looks around. There's Amnon, one of the sons of David, a promising prince. There's Tamar. It says that Tamar was a beauty queen. She was radiantly beautiful. She was the most beautiful woman in all the land. Here's Mephibosheth. He's looking at the daughter of David. There's Absalom. The scriptures say that Absalom, from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, that there was not a man to rival how handsome he was. There's Mephibosheth. He's looking across and he, he sees, sitting beside Absalom, he sees David's nephew Joab. Joab is probably still carrying all the, the, the armament of a general of David's army. And he's sitting there in strength. No, no lameness with him. Strong man. And then perhaps not at this time, but soon enough, there'll be a little boy, the fair-haired golden boy, Solomon. And this boy really has David's eye. Mephibosheth looks, and maybe he's got room to pause. I'm not worthy to be at this table. I'm not worthy to be at this table. But then he sees one more at the table. He sees the face of David. And he said, that's my king. That's my king. And my king invited me to come to this table. And I am not worthy in and of myself. But I am worthy on the basis of his invitation. And I put all of my faith and all of my hopes and all of my confidence in that table. And I will eat and I will be treated and I will raise my glass like one of the king's son as David counts me. I pray this morning that whatever is keeping you far, if this message is not beginning to light the wood of your heart, you are far from God. You are far from knowing the pleasure and the, sensi- and the sensibilities of the king's kindness. But he welcomes and he beckons you to come and experience it. You need to look and ask yourself, how happy am I in Nothingville? What is it that if people really, really knew me, what would my name really reveal be? Where is my lameness? Where do I take my lameness? Where am I received just as I am and lifted up like royalty? All that is offered here, all that is offered here if we draw near to Him and we receive this King's kindness. I'm not asking you to do anything this morning. I'm not asking you to to go out and to take it personally with a personal application by even going and showing kindness to others. We should, as two rivers, compassion is one of our top three C values. We should show compassion as we've received compassion. The only thing I'm asking this morning is I want you to see 
and dwell on the face of this king. And I want you to see him not here in judgment or condemnation, not here to slay you, but here to give us and show us kindnesses that we don't even deserve. That is his joy without reluctance to show us. I want you to see the face of your king, even as you come to this table, receiving and desiring to enrich you again who look to him in faith and bring yourself to this table. Let's pray. Father, this is the gospel. The gospel says that you seek us out in a faraway place. Meet us in our faraway places this morning. And no matter what name I call myself, no matter how I insult myself, stupid, slow, weak, addicted, faithless, hypocrite, Father, send King Jesus to speak a new name, a promised name, to take my old name and to redeem it. Father, as you seek me out in this faraway place, as you seek us out and you bring us in, we realize that you did so at the great price of this king, not only fighting for us to be at this table, but dying for us that we could be at this table. So, Father, we come to this table, and it's our privilege, but it strengthens our heart to know how you see us. For our eyes, the eyes of our heart, would see the face of our King in this broken bread and this poured out wine. We would see his face fighting for us on the cross and making the way to this table possible, even for all eternity in the promised heavens. So, Father, please receive our confession of sin, our small faith, and now raise our eyes to see our rightful King and Him dispensing kindness afresh and anew from this table to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.